Welcome to Agility at Work, One Step Ahead. This is Mike Wheeler, and I'm here with co-host Kim Leary. How are you, Kim? Doing well, Mike. Really excited about this upcoming episode. You know, we're all at a moment where we're trying to make sense of what's going on in this world of ours. What's the truth? What's not? And our guest, Clark Freshman, has some very interesting ideas about that. Well, you and I have known Clark for some time. He teaches at Hastings Law School, which is part of the University of California system. Uh, he is obviously well-trained legally, but uh, has gotten very interested in the emotional part of negotiation. Not so much, I think, and he could correct us uh, if, if I've gotten this wrong, but uh, how we are with ourselves, our inner selves, and what we're feeling in high-stress moments. And he has a very important take on compassion, especially when things get hot. Compassion can be also self-compassion. So let's invite Clark in here and hear more about mindfulness and uh, compassion. You're on the line, I think, Clark. Is that right? Yes, that's right. What is the weather in San Francisco today? Well, another uh, another beautiful day. It's far from beautiful here. I love San Francisco. <laughs> My grandmother was uh, born there, and uh, so I have second cousins still in the Bay Area. Uh, don't get out there as often as I'd like. But Clark, you and I have talked uh, over the years about mindfulness and compassion, as I would call them virtues perhaps um, in their own right, but they also play a role in our social lives, whether it's working with colleagues or negotiating um, can you bring us up to date in terms of what you've been teaching and doing and uh, where this fits in uh, in terms of your own practices? Sure. I just was uh, two weeks ago uh, speaking to the California Judges Association, and they'd asked me to speak about mindfulness initially because they had a mindfulness initiative, and they had read a recent article by mine for judges that was called uh, Mindfulness uh, 1.0. 1.5. Uh, so that's a, that's a good take on what I'm thinking about now. So I still am a big fan of certain types of mindfulness and the research behind that, noticing things as they're happening in a relatively accepting way. Uh, the 1.5 part to it involves two things. Uh, one is marrying it to what I now like to think of as harvesting the truth and I used to think of as detecting lies. Uh, and the second part to it is adding in both compassion and self-compassion, which I think is necessary both for really getting the most out of mindfulness itself, as well as getting the most out of lie detection and negotiation. So that's, uh, that's what I'm up to right now. Kim, I would think when you were a clinical practitioner in psychology, you've got your doctorate in the field, it's your function to be mindful of what's being transacted between you and your patient or your client. Um, and even if somebody is, would be very difficult for me to be with her, you have to find some compassion in you uh, when, you're, when you're talking to people who are troubled and in pain. Yeah, that's absolutely right, Mike. In the, in the consulting room, it's, it's very important to be attuned to the other person, the story they want to share with you and the story they can't help but share with you. But I would argue that the same kind of um, parameters apply 
in leadership and management that the primary activity of, of leadership in many ways is to create the, a holding environment where uh, a kind of mindful attention is paid to the people on your team, uh, the people you're trying to engage in working a collective problem. And that includes, I would say, being both attuned to yourself but also attuned to the story, needs, ambitions of the other parties. Clark, I'm, I'm curious. You said you were working with a group of judges. Good for them for recognizing the kinds of needs that uh, Kim just enumerated. But what was their view of mindfulness and its role going into your talk with them? And what were you trying to uh, do to expand their understanding of it? The way many people understand mindfulness is uh, different from the way that Kim just spoke. So attunement is really what I think of as mindfulness and what historically really was the original understanding of mindfulness, uh, which is that it is both about what one could understand in a dualistic way as inner mindfulness and outer mindfulness. So going all the way back to when the Buddha first gave a talk on mindfulness, and it doesn't require any religious beliefs to practice mindfulness, but it's just interesting to look at it historically. He spoke of every kind of mindfulness, including of the breath, of the body, of thoughts, as being both internal and mindful. You specifically said, said be mindful internally and externally. And uh, many of the wonderful and well-intentioned teachers of mindfulness have forgotten about that internal external link. So when we're interacting with someone else, we're sort of co-creating the truth of that moment. So people sometimes talk about how do I deal with a difficult negotiator, right? Everybody's had that situation or a difficult relative at Thanksgiving. We're about to have Thanksgiving next week. And my insight, what is the insight that I try to teach now, I mean, be, be mine, is that we've co-created that difficult situation. That doesn't mean that we're equally to blame or that we equally have the power to change it, but we want to recognize things both internally and externally. We may go into a meeting with a client or with a prospect or with a direct report or someone who uh, supervises us. And if we don't recognize that we're already feeling a little bit on edge, uh, we're going to possibly make things worse than they have to be. The Dalai Lama says, it's important to notice the spark before the flame. So I, I've, I've, I'm intrigued by that. I'm wondering if you're a judge, what the spark is and what the flame is. I, I understand and am intrigued, supportive of Kim's interest in adaptive leadership. But if you want to talk about a hierarchy, it would <laughs> seem to be a judge who can declare winner, loser, guilty, not guilty, and can rule people out of order. Um, now, I'm framing the question this way, but I'm intrigued that a bunch of black-robed judges, maybe they took their robes off when they were here <laughs> with you and put on saf That's right. it's, saffron it's, robes. It's California. It's California. Yeah. But, but, but what motivated them to see the value in this? Well, so one of them came up to me afterwards, and he says that he realizes that he often yawns in everyday life and he worries that people think he's not paying attention or he's tired. But he's realized over time he yawns, as my dog often yawns, he thought, because of anxiety. And so when he's feeling anxious or scared, 
during a trial proceeding, he will take a break rather than yawn in front of the jury or in front of the attorneys or in front of the defendant and make any of them fear that he's not really paying attention. So that's mindfulness in the service of justice and a reminder to all of us that uh, all eyes tend to be on the authority figure. They're taking cues from the authority figure. And in a courtroom, that matters a lot. Yes, that's correct. And so to take it to another context, which is how do we model the way that we interact with each other? I think many people perceive that there is a lack of civility, uh, let alone kindness, in our modern political and business discourse. And people who are in authority can model that. So if I notice that someone says something that I think is not quite true, so I ask a student or I ask someone who's doing work for me, uh, what is the status of this report that you promised me today? And the person says, oh, well, actually, I think that I said I would get it into you next week. And I notice that they shrug slightly as they say that. That would tell me as an expert on lie detection, oh, that's interesting. They're not actually sure of that. Maybe they can't remember. Maybe they're actually intentionally lying. And it would be very tempting in many situations to just call someone out and say, I think you know exactly what you're doing. And I noticed that you just shrugged your shoulder. Obviously, you know that this is untrue. But that is neither compassionate nor functional. Instead, what one could do is say, well, that's interesting. Uh, what, uh, what do you what makes you recall that? So let's suppose that in a negotiation, someone says, you're offering us these services for $40,000. We can get someone to do the exact same thing for $20,000. And I suspect that that's not true because as they say that, they have some indication that it might not be true, such as a change in tone of voice, they're shrugging. Well, rather than my directly confronting them, a compassionate thing to do and a skillful thing to do would be instead to allow them to have the golden bridge to back down or to evolve their position. So instead of saying, I think you're lying, I would say, so I understand that there are some possibilities that you could talk to other people who might be similar to me and might do similar things for what, what seems to be a lower amount of money. And so I've changed it from validating what they've said to giving them permission to then back down later and on. And you know, it, that, that's such a, a wonderful uh, example that you mentioned, because it's, it also reminds us that uh, in a negotiation scenario or in uh, an organization or people who are working together on behalf of some problem, that uh, there are many different loyalties at play. There's the mm. loyalty in, at play in the moment and to the process we're engaged in, but there are also people back home that need to be satisfied. And that balancing back and forth uh, is possibly, it seems to me, one of the reasons why people will make some of the moves they do in a negotiation or a conversation. What do you think, Clark? Yes, I think that's great. And I think there's an opportunity to make that explicit at times. So if someone says, you know, the most that we can offer is this amount of money, rather than saying, I think that's untrue, even if I think that is untrue, I can say, well, you know, I understand that you're in a difficult situation. You're a part of this team, and obviously lots of other people have to have input into this hiring decision. I'm wondering what else it is that I might be able to provide you to bring back to these other people, right? So I'm changing it from I'm angry with them to let me try to understand the situation that they're in. You know, many of uh, our students, uh, when they're uh, 
talking about negotiation or their experience of working in authority systems where they have to negotiate all elements of day-to-day -day, uh, life and getting work done, you know, they often talk about how triggered they can feel at certain moments. And the perception or the belief or the suspicion that someone is lying to them can certainly be one of those triggers. But what you're describing is, I think, a piece of good advice that we usually put in a different form around, tell me more. We, we tend to shut down the story when we think we have the answer. But your invitation at those moments, it sounds like, is to say, tell me more about what's driving this. Yes, yeah, so tell me more is one of the branches uh, of a very large tree of compassionate and self-compassionate responses, right? So rather than thinking, this is a bad person, they must be saying something that's untrue, I can break both of those assumptions down. It might be, maybe they're not saying something that's actually untrue. Or maybe they're saying something that's untrue, but they're being pressured to do that. I think it's very interesting, no matter what one's uh, political beliefs, there are those in the current administration who say, including anonymous, that uh, they feel that what they are doing is the best that they can. And people have certainly testified this week about that, that they feel that they can have influence within uh, a system that they might not value completely, but they think that they can try to help out. So when we see someone acting badly in a way, whether it's lying to us or threatening us, rather than demonizing them, we might both, and this is the compassion and the self-compassion, the compassionate part can understand, well, they may have their own constraints. They may have their own suffering that is driving them to this. So I'm the self-compassionate I was going to say, uh, <clears throat> maybe we can cut there and then I'll start. I'm mindful, Clark, of the, of the time, um, mm. and I'm wondering what we can leave with our listeners. Uh, was there a particular takeaway when you were working with the judges that uh, resonated what, that you could share with us? I think one of the takeaways is recognizing that we are all imperfect and we can improve rather than beating ourselves up when we realize that we've been lied to, which happens to us all the time. Rather than think there's something wrong with me that I've been lied to. Why didn't I notice this earlier? How could I have agreed to invest in this bad company by this swindler? How could I have dated this person who turns out to be bad? We instead contextualize it to recognizing this is quite common. People often get things wrong. This doesn't make me a bad person. It doesn't mean that I'm always going to be taken advantage of. And to also take an active role in learning, how can I better take care of myself, whether it's through learning certain negotiation tactics or learning how we can respond to untruths. And that is, I think, uh, a really important lesson to learn is our instinct is to call people out when we see a potential untruth, as opposed to giving the person an opportunity to tell the truth rather mm -hmm. than confronting them directly. That's uh, clearly something to uh, ponder. I you know, know mediators like David Hoffman who are able in very heated moments to be compassionate with people who are angry and hurt and still not be possessed by those, mm. by those feelings. So I hope we can come back and uh, check in with you from time to time, Clark. Uh, great that you could uh, join us on Agility at Work. Thank you very much, and thank you, Kim. Thanks so much, Clark.
let's remind people about how they can chat with us and with their fellow listeners on our Negotiation 360 website. Well, it's not just the chat that they can have with us and other listeners, but there are other resources uh, on the site. Um, you can find my Negotiation 360 self-assessment and best practice app. There are links to online courses, and we're putting up articles that you and I have written together and maybe some others as well. So there's lots of stuff on agile negotiation and adaptive leadership. Much of it is free. We've even simplified the URL for podcast listeners. Here's how to find us. Just key in the letter N, as in negotiation, and the numbers 360.expert. That's N360.expert, and you'll find us.